0: John Heights. Today uh, we have a twofer. Interviews with rock vet Rick Derringer and with songwriter, guitarist, singer Anders Osborne. Uh, I should tell you these, uh, if you're not familiar with the Fret Club, these interviews come from uh, my dealings with Vintage Guitar Magazine. I've written for Vintage Guitar for over 30 years. Check them out at Vintage. Guitar.com. I personally think it's the best guitar magazine out there for you. Uh, We start with Rick Derringer. Uh, If you're not familiar with Rick, uh, he's been around rock and roll history a long, long time. He had a number one record way back in the 1960s with his band The McCoys out of Ohio. The song was Hang On Sloopy. He sang it. He played lead guitar on it. And after that, he's done plenty. He was a member of Edgar Winter's White Trash playing brilliant guitar on the Live Roadwork album, among other things. His solo record from 1973... All-American Boy is one of the truly underrated records of the rock era. Uh, that album did have a top 40 hit on it, Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo. This interview, it's from 2009. It coincided with the release of the album Nighted by the Blues, which is where our conversation started
1: uh we uh, it was an album made for shrapnel for mm-hmm. for blues bureau records over there and that's mike varney's label
2: yeah
1: and uh i've done others for mike i've done four others this is my fifth one and each time he gives me a little more freedom um to do it you know the sure. way i think it should be done and and uh this time the fifth one was the first time where he really said okay you don't have to come to california you can <laughs> do it in the studio where you usually work which happens to be florida sure and uh you can use whatever musicians are down there that you like to use and i won't even tell you what songs i suggest uh, sure yourself down there with whatever photographer you want and Pretty much, it was the first time he really gave me the complete, total reins of this CD. Uh, and he calls them blues CDs. It's on Blues Bureau International. Sure. The, the caveat being, Mike Varney's idea of the blues is not strict blues.
2: <laughs> sure, certainly. He really
1: likes things that are kind of a little over the edge, um, toward the high-energy stuff. He likes uh, a rock kind of album. The way he puts it is, he likes the stuff I did with Johnny Winter. <laughs> okay. And, and so I have to, you know, even though he says, you got complete reigns, do whatever you want, I still have to temper that, knowing what Mike Varney wants. And... Um, that's good, because uh, it gives me the opportunity to uh, do a little more rock again, even sure. in a blues sure. uh, format. Uh, but also then, without him there, I was able to stretch a little bit. Um, I, I don't think he would have necessarily recommended a song like Funny, I Still Love You. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Um and I, and I know that it's problematic getting a mechanical license for a Jimi Hendrix song, mm-hmm. so I know that he wouldn't have uh, encouraged me to do it if six was nine. <laughs> but being that I had a little freedom,
2: yep. I went ahead and did those songs anyway, and
1: it turns out he really liked it a lot. He, he loved uh, uh, both of those songs and uh, was happy that I did them. Yeah, well,
2: one of the beautiful things about the album to me was, I mean, you have you know, a Ray Charles song, a Hendrix song, uh, you the mess around. You have your stuff and it's such a nice mixed bag of stuff that it fits together wonderfully for guitar. That's what I like.
1: I mean, I, I really, it's hard for me. It's always has been hard for me to focus and make things like all one <laughs> little uh, slice. Yeah. I uh, like a whole big pie. <laughs> I understand. That's what I try to do when I record. Well,
2: and that's, you know, and not to harp back on All American Boy again when I was a kid. That's the thing I loved about it. it there was so much stuff on there to, to you know, just to digest. As a young well, you know the
1: record companies will mm-hmm. always—they always came back and said, "Hey, Rick, of you could have had a lot more success, <laughs> if you would have just, you know, focused on that rock and roll, <laughs> four long-haired guys playing that <laughs> rock and roll, uh, you know," so they weren't always happy with that. Of but course, I really do feel like you're right. I think uh, it has helped me attain a kind of longevity
2: that a lot of those kind of bands didn't get, didn't have. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I would agree. How? Uh, <clears throat> question. Since you do have that kind of well-roundedness. When you were growing up, were you the kind of guy that listened to pretty much everything? Were you just, you know, just whatever you could hear you, you wanted to?
1: I listened to everything. When I was a kid, my folks had a big record collection, and it included a lot of Les Paul and Mary Ford, mm-hmm. uh, but they also had a lot of country in their roots. We had Merle Travis and Chet Atkins, sure. and, and then on the other side of the coin, they stretched there was some West Montgomery there and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, stuff like that. So uh, I really had a whole well-rounded start in life, uh, including um, standards, Mm -hmm. Um, But it wasn't very long before, you know, I started playing when I was nine. That's 1956. That I call the year of Elvis. Mm -hmm. And uh, Elvis just smashed through uh, our awareness in 1956. And as a kid, he certainly made a big impact. So I started getting struck with rock. And when I started playing, of course, you want your friends to be uh, (laughs) uh, just as uh, excited as you are. Yeah, sure. (laughs) the best things about playing guitar is uh, winning friends and influencing people and of course uh, my friends being
2: young kids uh we we really concentrated on a lot of rock then yeah uh, speaking of friends obviously in your career you've made friends with a lot of folks we all know and you've worked with them you've produced some obviously with edgar that kind of thing uh you started in the business pretty young was that kind of you know luck of the draw that things worked out the way they did as far as you know just keep growing into you know those relationships with those folks
1: yeah I mean that's really it in a nutshell the uh, um, we were told by our parents that you probably won't have enough success in music (laughs) to make it your livelihood you better have something else to fall back on I was going to be an artist I was enrolled in the Dayton Art Institute okay Um, in right, uh, you know, when in last year in school I, I I was accepted and I was ready to go, but that summer turned out to be the summer when we recorded Hang On Sloopy, sure, and uh, it really was an instant huge hit, and, and I ended up not not going to that art school, so um, it was really kind of a surprise that we had that kind of a success and uh, yeah. did kind of just fall into it. So I really was prompted uh, immediately to recognize <laughs> that it wasn't necessarily something that happens to everybody <laughs> and uh, try to hold on to it to try to uh, be very tenacious about yeah. the music I like the music mm-hmm. and I, like, uh, I like the music whole business I love the writing the producing the playing the concerts the studio I love all of it so uh just uh, c- continuing to have enough success to allow me to continue to do it all the time
2: is really my goal. And obviously, at that young age, too, quite quite an eye-opening. I, know, I remember reading you guys open for the Stones. You guys were doing everything basically with that big hit, right? We did everything. We toured all over the world. In fact, I tell people in our
1: concerts that, you know, when I meet new people, inevitably most of them say, hey, man, how's Johnny and Edgar? And uh, that's great. You know, I love Johnny and Edgar, and and they are doing great. <laughs> but what most of them don't even know is that long before I met those guys, I was already out, like I, we just said, touring all over the world. With uh, We had three big hits. We had Hang on a Fever and Come On, Let's Go were all huge, huge hits all over the world. So we were
2: uh, touring all over the place, all through the uh, mid-60s, mid to late-60s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Edgar's kind of funny. He pops up at the least expected times recently, I've noticed. All of a sudden, he'll pop up on a record, and I, I, I'd forgotten about him. I hate to say it that way. It sounds bad, but you know what I mean. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well,
1: Edgar <laughs> lives in uh, Hollywood, 90210,
2: and, um, <laughs>
1: and has access to those kind of... You know, kind of star, sure. uh, heavy visibility kind of situations, movies, uh, commercials, stuff like that. And there's uh, no, no telling where he'll turn up. Um, me, on the other hand, I live in, uh, sometimes in Florida, sometimes in Rio Rancho, New Mexico, and sometimes in Franklin, Tennessee. <laughs> so I, I kind of drift around. Uh, the closest to the music business is Franklin, Tennessee. Yeah, uh, Florida and... Uh, And New Mexico really don't have a thriving kind of music business going on too much. You know,
2: not as Mm -hmm. much as uh, Nashville, New York, L.A., those kind of cities. You like it warm, obviously. I'm in Minneapolis, so I just got done with winter. (laughs) I
1: I love Minneapolis,
2: Uh uh, frankly. And if it wasn't
1: for those long winters, that's probably one of the places (laughs) I'd be. I love the town. I love all the parks and stuff. It's a beautiful town. Yeah, it
2: really is. I I would agree, definitely. Did you? I have a silly question because it just popped into my head, and I hope I'm not well did patty smith co-write a song on all american boy with you
1: patty smith and i have co-written several songs together Uh, the one on all american boy it was called hold
2: Hold, sure well no well yes (laughs) and i also redid a
1: version of that on my smooth jazz uh very successful smooth jazz cd the cd was called free ride Mm -hmm. and uh it it ended up being in the top 40 for the whole year first one i ever tried and, and at this point the only one that i've done so far but we redid that
2: version, uh, or that song, Hold, that I wrote with Patty. You were an acquaintance, I'm assuming, of Patty's then at the time? Knew her.
1: Well, yeah. As a matter of fact, we were pretty good friends. Um, mm-hmm. Steve Paul, mm-hmm. uh, who was my manager at that time, had a, a very kind of eclectic view sure. of the world and, and sat in a kind of interesting uh, place in New York City. He had a, a club where a lot of people came, and, and he was very into the whole arts kind of scene, and, and Patty being... Um, uh, in fact, at that time, Patty uh, was uh, Robert Mapplethorpe's sure. girlfriend. She was living with Robert Mapplethorpe. And so uh, we were immersed in that whole kind of world of poetry and, and uh, uh, art. And Steve just thought that would be a good... Uh, sure. Steve you know he encouraged it and mm-hmm. he thought it would really be a good combination of uh, writing some music with patty's lyrics and and
2: uh, i enjoyed it it was interesting, interesting. okay well good i'm glad it, it just popped into my head so i'm glad i wasn't wrong <laughs> uh one other question about I, i'll warn you in advance i am a complete steely dan geek oh
1: <laughs> man me too well
2: you've done some work with them obviously and i'm curious how you ended up Meeting them or whatever. No, did you know them at the time, or how? How did all that happen? How did you end up playing on Steely Dan records? Well, I,
1: I uh, while living in New York City for twenty six years, sure. mm-hmm. I had the opportunity, uh, like we were just talking about, to be uh, meet all kinds of people, yep, sure. play on all kinds of records and stuff like that. And one of the things I did was I was asked one day to come and if I'd help um, this guy called me up he said I'm a producer and I'm gonna produce some demos to -hmm. try to get this guy a record deal I said who is it and he said "Uh, well he used to be with uh, Jay and the Americans and uh his name is uh, donald fagan and he said we're going to try to get him a record deal would you play on the the demos and, uh, and i said sure that sounds mm-hmm. cool sure and um i did i played on the demos it was gary katz at that yeah. time he called himself gary cannon okay. he was the producer uh but he ended up taking those and and uh, they ended up starting a whole band, and it became Steely Dan. Mm-hmm. And so they went and did an album after I did the demos and called me up after they were successful, after the first record, and said, hey, <laughs> sure. would you uh, come and help us some more? Yeah. And uh, after that point, I played on most most of their albums. Um, a lot of times I don't even know you know, which songs because they don't always <laughs> sure. give credit and stuff. And... Um, I know that I played rhythm on a lot of, a lot of their music, yeah. uh, where it's just me sitting in the background there playing my little stuff, and not, nothing that you'd hear.
2: Yep, no, I understand. You no know,
1: solos and stuff like that, but yeah I'm, I'm on most of their albums, and, and then I played on Donald 's solo album as well, uh, Green
2: Dolphin Street, I believe it was called Okay, Something like
1: that yeah, uh, but I enjoy playing with those guys anytime they call.
2: They, uh, I, I interviewed Walter Becker last year, and I, I, of course, gave him the laundry list of guitarists they worked with just to you get know, a one-line thing. And Walter had very complimentary things to say about you. So, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> just so you know. I, and I
1: just saw um, at the Dallas Guitar Show a couple months ago. Uh, I got to hang a little bit with uh, Jeff Baxter. Sure, sure. Who, uh, year and we also did a little morning radio pr thing where we both got to play live together Uh, jamming together
2: were you uh did you know jeff before obviously you must have known him from when you uh i knew
1: jeff when he worked in a guitar store uh dan armstrong and bill lawrence sure uh, used to have a guitar store in new york city and um Jeff was one of the people that uh,
2: worked there both as a salesman and as a tech. Sure. Mm-hmm. And you knew him way back then. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. That makes sense. He was a, like literally my first guitar hero So that, when I was about 14, so that's oh, right. He's an interesting
1: guy. He's, yeah, a he's a good, really he's, an interesting character. Yeah, I, uh, I
2: did a story on him about 10 years ago for the magazine, and we talked more missile defense than we talked guitar. So that's <laughs> what I was going to say. you
1: know, air marshal now. Uh, <laughs> yep. He does all kinds of things. Yeah,
2: he's a he's a fun guy. I've had a couple chats with him since. He was thinking about running for the Senate in California and asked if he could use my story. And I said, sure, go ahead. Feel free. But then, I,
1: I'll tell you, we need people like him in the Senate. And yeah. some of the
2: people we have there, we need to get rid of. <laughs> well, I can't argue with you there. <laughs> I cannot argue with you there at all. Um, as far as uh, these days uh, touring, obviously you're still doing shows and stuff. What... Uh, Said you have three different places you live. Are you based out of anywhere as far as when you decide to do some shows, or do you kind of go all over?
1: Well, I've been based in uh, Florida mostly, Mm -hmm. but we just acquired an unbelievable, beautiful house in uh, New Mexico, so Mm -hmm. I'm out there a big portion of the time now too. And uh, then I just like to be near uh, Music City, USA. (laughs) Um, Nashville. I just uh, have in the past couple years started coming here more often, Mm -hmm. and it's just amazing. Uh, you just run into more people from the music business here yep. walking around, you know, just doing your daily life than you do either in New York City or Hollywood. Mm-hmm. They're too spread out. Music City, uh, N- Nashville, is just a concentrated one little place and, you know, they might be waiters,
2: they might be cab drivers. The, everybody in Nashville has something to do with the music business. Mm-hmm. And a lot, I know a lot of folks from our generation actually have moved down there, folks who, you know, had hit records, that kind of thing, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I've talked to plenty of them for the magazine actually so uh yeah i, I have a little about. place here that i just rent because mm-hmm.
1: uh, i don't like to lay too many uh you know too many heavy
2: duty foundations that can't be moved <laughs> sure sure uh, do you uh as far as uh and i don't know if, if you if it's something you want to do i know you've produced in the past obviously edgar and that is that anything you ever think about anymore besides your own stuff or uh you know, do you work with other artists in that capacity, or?
1: Well, I I love to work on my own stuff more than anything else. <laughs> sure. Now, but that doesn't mean I wouldn't do other projects for other people. Uh, I'm not as into speculating, uh, trying to find artists. You know, in fact, yep. I hear people all the time go, "Man, that guy is great. He should make a record." But I'm not into taking that person and then trying to get a record company, mm-hmm. trying to get a record deal. All that stuff has become harder and harder all the time. Yeah. Anyway. Sure. Um, so I'm not as much into that. If a record company calls me up and says, Rick, we have this great artist and uh, we have a budget and we'd love for you to produce it, uh, then I, I am certainly apt to say yes in that kind of a situation.
2: Okay. How about uh, just uh, in general playing uh, studio stuff? Do you ever do anything like that? anymore, aside from your yeah, stuff? sure. Or? I just
1: mm-hmm. played on uh,
2: the one of my favorite solos I ever played was on an air supply song
1: mm-hmm. called Making Love Out of Nothing at All. Mm-hmm. And whenever I hear that on the radio, I always tell my friends, hey, check this out. The moon <laughs> coming up; it's going to be cool. Uh, and uh, Russell, the main voice sure. of Air Supply, has uh, been working on a new CD. And they called me up and asked me if I'd play on a couple songs on that record. And the one I played on, uh, or oh, the one I played on a couple, but the one I really liked is uh, sounds like it's going to be a big hit. It uh, would be one of those kind of crossover things, a little sure. country, a little pop, but it's just a great, great song. Nashville is a songwriter's uh, city. They honor their songwriters, uh, and they really uh, have created the best songwriters mm-hmm. in the world. And um, they have access, when they're doing an album like Russell's, uh, they have access
2: to the best songwriters and the best songs. And this song is just great. Huh, interesting. It's a silly question, then. You talked, I would have never guessed that uh, you played on an air supply record. Did you do a lot of studio stuff? At that point in your career? I mean, I knew well, I you Quite, knew you quite played. a
1: bit. Yeah, I uh-huh. played on uh, all kinds of different things. I believe at rickderringer.com there's still a discography. Oh, there is. Okay. A lot of the stuff. But the,
2: all kinds of things. Bonnie Tyler, I love that one.
1: Sure. On her record totally cut to the heart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That album, I play all the guitars on that album. Really?
2: Okay, I was unaware
1: of that. Yeah, huh. and some, some of the, like I say, a couple of the big air surprise songs, a couple songs by Barbara Streisand, I play on stuff by KISS, yep, um, sure.
2: I've played on just a ton of all different kinds of things. I have talked to a lot of guitarists who played on KISS records that I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear, jazzers, you know, <laughs> not jazzers, but Robin Ford, you, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: well, they uh, really wanted to make hits. Sure, and, and sure. Uh, they they reached out to a lot of really good players in making mm-hmm. those records. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, as far as uh, is there, do you still listen a lot to music? I know that sounds like an odd question, but. <laughs> Yeah, just uh, sure. anything that catches uh, I don't you. Go out and buy a
1: lot of CDs. Mm-hmm. I'm not that kind of a listener. Yep. But uh, I certainly am aware of stuff, and I have all my favorites. I mean, you just mentioned Robin Ford. Love Robin Ford. Sure. I think Robin Ford is just one of the coolest guitar players out there. Um, and whenever I have an opportunity, I listen to his stuff. Uh, there's a lot of them. There's sure. a lot of- uh,
0: from that point, the talk went to Rick's guitars, the ones he was using at that time.
1: This whole record okay. and it's a, a
2: signature guitar that i've worked with warrior
1: mm-hmm. to uh, design and, and uh, create we uh, started working together about six seven years ago probably okay. and uh, what they allow me to do is you know I've, I've worked with a lot of other people over the years and and uh, several companies would make rick derringer guitars but they wouldn't allow me kind of the hand on, hands-on uh, ability that warrior has allowed me we create guitars I think of changes that might improve the guitar. Mm-hmm. They try those things on the next one. Um, if they really work, if we both like the results, then those results are incorporated in the next guitar that's built. Okay. So the Warrior Signature, Rick Derringer model is the guitar I played on the whole album. Mm-hmm. Is there any, then, uh, yeah. Uh, amp. Mm-hmm i also wanted to create a rick derringer style amplifier okay. and so several years ago four or five years ago i started working with several of the big designers the custom amp builders sure and uh, working on an idea that i had and uh, made some great amps but one of them to me really stood out and it's uh made by vvt mm-hmm. vintage vacuum tube okay and the vvt we call the rick derringer model the hyperdrive and that's pretty much what i used on 90 percent of the whole record the rick derringer hyperdrive and the warrior uh,
2: signature rick derringer guitar is there any uh guitar and this uh, might be a question you can't answer that you would perhaps compare (laughs) your signature guitar too was there it's it's really hard because uh, over the years Mm
1: -hmm. i certainly grew up you see me uh, on the White Trash album and in the old McCoy's records playing my 355 Gibson you see me playing Les Pauls on pictures you see me on the Derringer Live record playing uh, a Strat 65 Strat Um, then uh, after that I I worked for a while with Cindy Lauper and stuff playing Steinbergers Mm -hmm. love those little Steinbergers they were cool Um, after that I worked with BC Rich Guitars and created a guitar chord called the Stealth Mm -hmm. Guitar for them that they still make as a matter of fact they still make the Stealth model Uh, after that I I started playing PRS guitars for a while Paul Reed Smith made some beautiful instruments for for me so what we tried to do when we did the Warrior was kind of take the best of all those instruments (laughs) sure sure and, and create one instrument that really could compete with all of them. And uh, I like to feel like Warrior's making the, the collectible guitars of tomorrow. People don't know about them because they're only ten years old, um, so it's relatively yeah. unknown. But uh, if you go to guitar shows and stuff, you get to see them. Yeah. Uh, not many music stores carry them, but I like to feel like they're making the guitars that'll be collectible in, in another
2: five or six years. Yeah.
1: And, and, and uh, same the same thing, the VDT amps. Yeah. It's the greatest.
2: Well, from the tones you're getting on the record, if that's the only guitar used, it definitely is a versatile guitar. Definitely. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, I use that on just like like literally 99% of the record, and the same thing with the Hyperdrive amp. Okay. We've, one day after the album was done, I went in to do a session for someone else, and I, I leave one of my Hyperdrive heads usually at the studio. Mm-hmm and uh for whatever reason uh my main guitar my main warrior guitar was was not available Mm -hmm. it was either my roadie had it or something and so i had to grab a different guitar in this case it was a a strat i had to take i took strat Mm -hmm. and we didn't have my head when i got to the studio i realized oh shoot i don't have my head here either Mm -hmm. so we had to use other amps and I gotta tell you, it was a struggle. We've become <laughs> so used to being able to get a sound so easily
2: with the Warrior guitar and the VBT app. Sure. It was
1: really a struggle to get a sound that we really liked.
2: Huh. Interesting. Do you uh, still have uh, any of your old guitars? Keep I do, most I have of them.
1: that 65 yeah. uh, that I used on uh, Derringer Live and other albums, you know, the Derringer records yep. previously, but you can see it on Derringer Live. Right. I have that 65 strat, uh, and I have the world's cleanest 66. I have a 66 strat sunburst mm-hmm. that when people see it, they go, This has to be a reissue. <laughs> you no, know it's not a reissue.
2: Oh, this one just happens to be this clean.
1: It's the world's cleanest 66 that I've ever seen. Oh. So I have those two old ones, and I have uh, various, uh, like I said, a couple Strats, a couple Gibsons. Uh, but the crowns of my collection. I, well, I still have a PRS. I have a two pickup uh, thick body, mm-hmm. like a jazz type body. Oh, okay. uh, The PRS made that's beautiful. I have one of the three pickup three snow bars. Uh, that they made for me that I still have. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. But, of course, the crown jewels. Uh, I have four warriors right now that I just love, yep. and I'm currently I'm playing one that has a uh, black alligator skin on the top. Oh.
2: <laughs> and yeah. it's very cool. Nice. Yeah, sounds great.
0: That's Rick Derringer from an interview done in 2009. Uh, don't forget these interviews all done for Vintage Guitar Magazine. Check the magazine out at VintageGuitar.com. We're going to shift gears just a bit now. We move forward a decade, 2019. This is an interview featuring talented singer-songwriter, guitarist, Anders Osborne. Anders and I were chatting about what I think is one of the year's best records. It's called Buddha and the Blues. You recorded it with West Coast stalwarts, including Waddy Wachtel on guitar and Bob Glob on bass. Uh, here's how all of that album uh, and the folks that played on it came about.
3: Uh, just an idea that I talked to my drummer, who took, I used to play with a guy named Brady. And then when I switched drummer, and me and Chad Cromwell started playing. -hmm. And the more we talked, the more I felt like I have this record I want to make on the West Coast. I want it to be somehow connected to a lot of the records I grew up on, Uh, Mm -hmm. even the rock stuff. But there's a there's an aspect to Southern California in the late '60s and into the '70s that they were a very important part of my kind of songwriter part of my. musicianship
4: mm-hmm.
3: so not so much the the player but the atmospheric and the attitude and the, the romantic side of, uh, of writing songs mm-hmm. so I said I'd like to go out there and then maybe see if we can uh, assemble a team that fits making a record uh, with the songs that I'm going to write for that environment so usually okay. I try to have a a studio in mind or a landscape in mind or a season in mind? Is it a winter record? Is it, you know? So, in this case, I saw Southern California and the dryness and maybe some ocean and some of these hills, mountains, mm-hmm. um, and and that whole thing. So I wrote with that in mind. And once he put together the team with Wadi on guitar and oh, yeah. Bob blob on the bass and then Chad and then Nico Bolas who's worked with a lot of the, so all these guys have worked with a lot of the guys that I listened to when I was in my career. sure Sure. Mm-hmm. So it just became kind of a, um, a full circle a little bit. And sure. then, uh, yeah. And then we took my stuff and some of the swampy stuff that I write and mixed it up with some of the, you know,
4: <laughs>
3: slightly more California rock vibe of the seventies and Sure. And I love I love the way it came out. So that, that was the idea. And then, uh, lyrically, I wanted it to be, I think the title track is kind of the idea of it. It's just the duality of everybody, the divided mm-hmm. mind that we live with, the unconscious and the conscious, the good and the bad, mm-hmm. and the, all the decisions that we sometimes don't realize we make all through the day. We decide to stay in habits rather than to change things in our lives that we're unhappy with
4: sure um, yeah, that makes
3: yeah so th- yeah so that was that was the lyrical idea okay
4: so that's it? yeah it's an interesting album lyrically uh, it's interesting musically too it is interesting lyrically yeah, yeah. i can i can hear exactly what yeah. you're talking about there <laughs> Uh, so you, it was Ch- Chad that uh, put the the band together. I mean, oh. did you have any of these guys in mind when you when you started out, or did it just kind of fall into place with, with all those guys who are you no, know it, all pretty well known?
3: It, it was yeah, it it was just Chad. Like we 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 made some other calls. Some other people couldn't do it, and then usually the process of getting the team together, and then Windy mm-hmm. the on background vocals. I forgot too, who's mm-hmm. you who's know, been singing on so many wonderful records. But I think yep. that. Once you start making phone calls and reaching out, it all usually it just takes a life on its own and it it gradually it becomes the team that you're supposed to have.
4: Okay. So case, yeah.
3: These are the guys that were available and they were really into it and you know, they're also good friends, so everybody it was it was an easy choice.
4: Mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. Did you write the songs uh, before the band was put together, or is it kind of a mixture during the whole process, or how how did that work?
3: Uh, one song I wrote uh, during the session. Uh, I went for a hike, maybe on the third day, mm-hmm. and uh, as I came back from the hike in the morning, I wrote uh, the one the one I love, which is the second from mm-hmm. last or something. Yep. So that was that's very California. Um, and that was written after, you know, walking around there and hiking. Mm-hmm. But the rest of them I wrote prior to that, yeah.
4: Okay, three, four. Um, as far as uh, guitar parts go, um, sh- should I know between you and Waddy who played what? Or uh, was there any, you now know I, what I mean? I
3: don't I don't really know all of it. I know the Smokey sure. solo in the outro, that is Waddy. That's okay. long grinding mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yep. Some of them are mine. There's, there are a few. I can't really remember exactly. Yeah, sure. But, but uh, he has a pretty distinct. He creates these beautiful, like the smoke and mirror is a good example of what he does. He creates these uh, stabbing rock parts that we stacked up, and mm-hmm. he has a way of, you know, shaping tunes, um, just really, really well. So, uh-huh. uh, you know, you, usually if you hear specific beautiful parts I'm more of a um, I'll play along with my singing you know the the vocal tracks are almost all uh, live tracks oh okay Mm -hmm. what I like to do the the vocal tracks and my guitar parts are happening on the spot
4: and the body is
3: much better and really proficient in creating parts and coming back in and stuff like that okay
4: makes sense uh, did you? Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
3: No, that's his expertise. Oh,
4: okay. Um, did you play uh, both uh, electric and acoustic on this one too, as usual? Yeah.
3: Or? Yeah. Yeah. I mixed it up. Um, there's. I, I, I would have to listen to the tracks to see exactly where sure. I did what.
0: The interview wrapped up with talk about Anders' guitars and amplifiers. Uh,
3: 1972. Les Paul Deluxe, one mm-hmm. of those uh, with the mini humbuckers. I got one of those mm-hmm. that I play quite a bit. I have a custom made Delaney out of Texas, um, Les Paul style, he calls it Lagrange, Grange. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. and that's made out of part of the wood is from my house, the Cypress from oh. 1889. So it's, um some leftover pieces when I was doing a reno and I mm-hmm. sent it to him. So he's used that and that one sounds really hot. It's very hot. cool sounding. Um, I, I still have my 68 Strat, the black one with uh mm-hmm. thick strings and high action for slide. Yep. Um, and then I have a 1970 sunburst deluxe as well.
4: Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. what else
3: have I been playing? <laughs> and then I have uh, the, the LaGrange, the, we call it the back on domain Les, Les Paul, the the custom-made has some, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's got humbuckers on it. They're, okay. I, can't, I can't remember. They're regular, they're not mini humbuckers. Okay. are the regular okay. Then I okay. got a, a 50, 56 Les Paul uh, reissue. With the UK okay. 90s in it that I use sometimes also.
4: Okay, fair enough. Those are, probably,
3: those are probably all the main guitars right there.
4: Okay, uh, what acoustic do you have a favorite that you use? Uh, especially you said like you track with vocals and acoustic sometimes. Anything you like yeah, to use? Yeah, there's
3: a there's a Gibson 1963 B25 small body that I use on a lot of tracking with a you know maybe a 57 compressed. It's it a mm-hmm. shore mic, so you get like a, a kind of a rock sound, very compressed and, and tough sound.
4: Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. And
3: then I have a sixty-sixty-four 64 J45 Gibson. Okay. Um, I got a 69 uh, D18 Martin that's uh, mm-hmm. really beautiful. It's very warm sounding, but it has beautiful mid-range. Okay. Usually mm-hmm. Martins do. Yep. Um, I play a 1906 Gibson Jr., oh. which is a very, very beautiful, uh, mid rangey, but bright and sort of reverby sounding tone to it. I, I'm not sure how it does it, but. Interesting. It sounds very interesting. Huh. And then on the live gig, I've been using some Yamaha LL26s, which is oh, sort course. of. A slightly smaller dreadnought, uh, D18. They're just a little tighter in the mid-range, so they cut. Through. Okay. They're mm-hmm. also handmade. Um, mm-hmm. And what else? I think that's it as far okay. as what I use most, mostly for recording. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yamaha. Uh, they don't get much press, but they make a nice uh, acoustic guitar. Actually, <laughs> I've always thought.
3: Oh my God. Their their handmade stuff is beautiful. I mean, mm-hmm. it really, I would I put it up there with my J forty five and the uh, the Martin. Now yep. it, they're they're all diff, different because they're handmade, but one especially I got two of them. One is wonderful, just wonderful. Place easy and sounds full and bright It's beautiful.
4: Huh? Interesting.
3: Yeah.
4: Uh, what about uh, amplifiers? Do you have anything uh, any favorites there?
3: Yeah, for sessions I have a 58 Tweed Deluxe, mm-hmm. Fender Tweed Deluxe. Vintage um I also have a 1482 Silvertone. I don't I'm not sure what the year is, but okay. it, it looks like you know those 60s
4: mid 60s ones. Yep. Sure. <laughs> yep. Early,
3: early mid 60s, yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. And then
3: uh I've used um Category 5 which is out of Dallas. Mm-hmm. They do my custom live stuff. But they have a custom, we call it two, we call it 211 because it's got one 12-inch speaker and one 10-inch speaker, and then it's a 50-watt, smaller combo. And it's, it's fantastic, especially if I pair it up with, like, the Deluxe or something, the Tweed.
4: Mm-hmm. Yep. It's,
3: it's great. Really wonderful sound. It's a Category 5, they do all my live stuff. Yep. And then I have a Marshall uh, custom kind of tweaked um, JCM 800. Uh,
4: okay.
3: I think it's a late 70s that has been custom mm-hmm. made. So it has an extra low-end kind of uh, uh, knob on it. It's, it's not just low-end. It's, it's more like bottom. It just creates like a... a slightly tighter plexi sound or something.
4: Sure. Yep.
3: Mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. So that's, okay. that's pretty much what I use. Yeah.
4: Okay. Uh, one other question I wanted to ask about the uh, the record. I know you said this one, you kind of went in with, with an idea of what you want. When you record or you're going to make it out, do you usually go in that way? Or does you just kind of let what happens happens? How, how does it usually work for you, the, the actual formula?
3: I usually have some sort of idea. And it okay. doesn't always work out. Uh, in this mm-hmm. case, I was very happy with it. But the next one we're making is going to be made in New Orleans with the same guys. So the idea uh-huh. is to have something continue, but we'll do it in New Orleans. And it's sl- a very different studio room. It's a much larger, it's an old church. So the idea uh-huh. is to write for that. So the songs are a little bit more, they have a little more darkness to them. The lyrics are it. still very positive. Yeah, it's going to have a, but a sonically more of an edge and
0: some darkness
4: to it. Okay, um, yeah, so yeah, makes sense. Perfect, we'll perfect.
0: Anders Osborne, a terrific player and songwriter. Uh, that interview done in conjunction with the 2019 album Buddha and the Blues, uh, in uh, my opinion, one of the best albums of the year. Check that album out, and after you're done with that, go back to 2013 when Anders uh, made an album called Peace. Uh, Check out the tune at 47, in my opinion, one of the best songs of the past decade or so. Uh, Thanks for listening. This has been The Fret Club. Make sure you check us out on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, You can send me an email, if you'd like, at jheight H-E-I-D-T, at garagelogic.com. Send me a message on Twitter or anything on Twitter you'd like to. I'm at Mr. Underscore FYI 10. We'd like to hear from you. Let us uh, know what you think of the show. It's The Fret Club, and we will talk to you again next week.